We're all familiar with the term cyberstalking, but I can almost guarantee that you've never heard anything quite like what we're about to talk about today. This is about a harassment campaign undertaken by a group of employees at eBay targeting a suburban Boston couple. That couple ran an online newsletter focusing on e-commerce that some eBay employees believed was unfairly critical of the company. The inexplicable retaliation included not only online threats, but also a barrage of deliveries of unwanted items, including a funeral wreath and live cockroaches. And ultimately, the campaign escalated to physical surveillance. A U.S. District Court judge called the situation, quote, just nuts, and I think she was being charitable. Jones Day's Andy Lelling and Amy Burkhart were there when this bizarre story unraveled. They'll talk about how something this strange could possibly happen and what lessons all companies can learn from this. Stay put and turn it up. This is going to be good. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Prior to joining Jones Day, partner Andy Lelling was U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, capping a 20-year career with the Justice Department. He was also the former head of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee on Cyber and Intellectual Property Crimes and a member of the Attorney General's Cyber Digital Task Force. And Jones Day's Amy Burkhardt is the former chief of the Cyber Crime Unit in the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office and the former lead prosecutor for the eBay case that we're about to discuss. An experienced trial lawyer and part of Jones Day's cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection practice, she has represented clients in criminal matters and civil litigation related to securities, accounting, and other financial matters. Both Andy and Amy are based in Jones Day's Boston office. Amy, Andy, thanks for being here today. It's good to be here. You know, I got to tell you, we've done a lot of podcasts, Jones Day Talks. We're sneaking up on 150 episodes, and we have covered all sorts of matters and cases and developments and happenings and events. And I got to tell you, this is more than likely going to be most bizarre podcast because of the underlying content and what happened in the events that we've ever done. It's a good thing Halloween's coming up close, right? It's that weird. So with that kind of strange introduction to some strange circumstances, Amy, Talk about the background of this matter with eBay and these employees and what they did and where we are right now. Give us an overview of what happened. Sure. Well, I'll start from the victim's perspective because uh, I think it's an important piece to kind of keep at the forefront here. There is a couple that live in a suburban Boston town in Massachusetts, and they started in the summer of 2019 was really the peak of it. It started before that. In 2019, there was a flurry of activity directed at them, it kind of falls into three buckets. The first bucket was they were getting a number of anonymous sort of Twitter communications. They ran an online e-commerce newsletter, and the husband was the publisher, the wife was the writer, and they were getting just a barrage of communications, deliveries, and eventually surveillance of them at their suburban home. Okay, so the crux of it was, and I've not seen what they actually published or put out there, but they apparently were were critical of eBay in some capacity, whatever eBay may have been doing that that they didn't like. They were critical of eBay, so this was retaliation? Well, it looks like that at first. It turned out not to be quite that. They wrote an online newsletter that covered all kinds of e-commerce trends, but eBay is obviously a big player in the e-commerce space. And the communications that they were getting from these anonymous accounts 
were purporting to be from eBay sellers. So they were saying things like, why are you so hard on eBay? We're trying to support our families and make money by selling things on eBay and you're pushing buyers away to other companies. So it sort of started like that. It became very threatening, saying things like, people will do anything to protect our families. You're hurting our families. The images that were associated with these communications were scary. There was sort of a variety of different voices, two in particular, but one of them was a scary pig face. That made the deliveries that they started getting even more menacing because they included a pig mask, an attempt to deliver a preserved fetal pig. So a, right. a fetal pig was, you know, tried to get sent to the house and they saw that. They got live cockroaches, they got funeral wreaths, plumbers and pizza deliveries at all times of day and night. They also started having a number of pranks directed at them, trying to get other people to come to the house. So hmm. there was a posting for a garage sale. Everything must go. Come on in and make an offer. And there were postings for online parties. Come on over. We're adventurous couples, swingers welcome, things of that nature posted on all different websites, trying to get other people to come to the house and sort of unwittingly participate in the harassment. And then they started feeling like they were being watched. They started seeing cars that were unfamiliar to them in their residential neighborhood, and they had the sense that they were being surveilled. It turned out they were right. We warned the listeners this was going to be strange, and so far I'm sure no one's disappointed if they were expecting that. Amy, how did this come to your attention back in 2019, I think it was? So at that time, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. Yeah. I was the cybercrime unit's chief and an AUSA working in the unit. And I was at the FBI, which I would do fairly regularly. I had an office over there. And the call came in from local PD to one of the FBI agents I worked with quite a bit and described what sounded like a very bizarre situation. Um, so my reaction was, that sounds very hard to believe, but mm -hmm. very interested if that's real. Andy, eBay is a household name, certainly one of the biggest players in the e-commerce space. As this investigation gets rolling, what was the company's reaction and how did they work with you, with your office? Once eBay was aware of this, they were extremely responsive. Their in-house lawyers investigated it aggressively inside the company and they were cooperative with the local police department and with the FBI and with us. As we'll get to, the key part here is the once aware, right? And that's where the lessons come for other companies. It took a while for eBay to even understand that this was going on within its own company. Since you kind of swerved into this point, Andy, how long had this been going on before it was uncovered? Amy gets this tip, for lack of a better word. Did this go on for months? Was that a year? Or how, how long were these weird situations going? The span of this was probably from about March or April 2019 through to September or so okay. of 2019. So it took the company itself months before it was aware that this kind of activity was going on within the company. And mm -hmm. this, as you pointed out before, and as Amy pointed out, there's nothing subtle about this activity. You have yeah. a unit within eBay essentially launching a campaign of terror against a middle-aged couple in a suburb. Yeah. Again, if this were a movie, no one would watch it, or the reviews would be terrible, because if this is so strange, this could never possibly happen. You can't suspend reality altogether when you're telling a story, because it turns out, as I say, I guess, cliche, cliche, truth can be stranger than fiction. Okay. Amy, to you first. I, I want to talk to Andy about this also, but this is cyber-stalking 
by employees of one of the world's largest companies. How does something this strange even happen in the first place? I mean, how did they get to this point? Well, it's funny you should mention something out of a movie because it's actually part of how they got to this point. Ah. Um, this was a slowly developing situation and then one that really took off like wildfire in part because of a plot that was based on a movie. So what happened was the company had been tracking this couple and the press that they were putting out for a good amount of time. And it was done generally out of this group called the Global Security and Resiliency Group, which one of their tasks, and many companies have them, was to sort of figure out what the potential threats are and what people are saying about the company. Obviously, there were others at the company that were aware of this press. There had been concern about the journalism that was being posted here, the comments that were coming, that there were a number of people who felt like they were unfair to eBay at the company and wanted to know more about this couple and what they were writing. Some of the things that happened at early stages were more subtle. This peak that we've described, which happened over a course of really in the summer of 2019, was after some people at very senior levels of the company became very frustrated with the press. There was a lawsuit that had developed. The online newsletter had covered the lawsuit in a way that they thought was unfair, and they wanted something to be done. And there was an email that was sent and some text messages that were sent where it was conveyed to Jim Ball, who headed the Global Security and Resiliency Group, that something should be done, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever this, it this, takes. This, this sounds like a gangster thing, right? It sort of whatever it takes. Like it. Yeah, because it becomes a, okay, what's our plan? We're going to harass this couple. And that came from the movie Johnny Be Good, in which there's a scene in which there's a number of deliveries that create some chaos. Also, Body of Lies with Leonardo DiCaprio, that was watched. Mm -hmm. There was a plot based on that where they decided to harass the couple, make them extremely upset, and then have someone from eBay come in, say they had seen what it was going on, and they wanted to stop it like a white knight. And this white knight would save the couple, and the press of uh, eBay would just certainly turn. They'd be so thankful that eBay had stopped this harassment that they themselves were creating, that the press coverage would suddenly become very positive, and that would be how they would solve the problem. Diabolical stuff. The fact that they thought through these steps, or this was the plan, it's incredible, really. Andy, what would you add to Amy's remarks regarding that part of this? Amy's remarks highlight one of the things that's interesting about this case, which is that you have a series of compliance failures that enabled this to occur. So you have hiring issues in that it mm -hmm. appears that Jim Baugh, who ran the Global Resiliency Unit, had some judgment problems, to put it mildly. You have <laughs> management issues because no one seemed to know what he was doing, and his management of his own unit seems to have been suboptimal. You have culture issues within eBay. So it's easy to dismiss this case as bizarre and so unique, but that would be a mistake for companies that think about these issues, these sort of compliance issues and what their employees are doing. Yeah, certainly. But I guess I have to ask, Amy, you ever see anything like this before? Ever? Never. Andy, you? No. In fact, the press asked us that at the time. <laughs> and no, I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, I guess you stay around long enough, you're bound to see and hear just about everything. All right, let's talk about this. What do we learn from this? There's probably really nothing 
positive to come out of this, but sometimes uh, of an unfortunate situation, there are lessons learned and we can maybe improve somehow. But let's talk about that. Let's go to Amy first. What are the lessons for compliance officers, say, in general counsels even, or anybody at a large organization like an eBay? What do you take away from this? You know, one of the things that I have seen over the course of the time that I was prosecuting and then now assisting victims involved in the cyber world is how much the world has changed and how sometimes people are slow to pick up on that. So, mm. you know, many companies have these groups, these GSOC groups, and there are things that they do to protect companies that are completely legitimate and appropriate. Right. But cyber adds this different element, right? And what the parameters are and what the expectations are aren't always going to be clear because sometimes people aren't kind of staying abreast of the different things that people might do. So here yeah. we saw this use of anonymous accounts and purchasing of burner laptops and burner phones and using prepaid cards to purchase the deliveries, techniques oh. that we would have seen previously only in drug trafficking organizations or other kinds yeah. of criminal activity being used in a corporate context. So maybe people aren't thinking ahead about what parameters do we put out? What expectations do we put out in the cyber world? And it's particularly important because I saw over and over again in a variety of contexts, but particularly cyber stalking, how this the internet gives us this ability to be anonymous from each other, this distance from each other. And when you don't see your victim, you don't see the harm that you're causing, you don't necessarily see them as a real person. And anonymity and the internet allows you to do that, put this buffer between you and the people you're hurting, and even people who would never consider themselves someone who would cause that kind of hurt or pain to someone else might start doing it. We all need to step back and, and take a look at how the world has changed and what different expectations we need to put out to others, particularly around cyber, make sure that we're continuing to comply with what we would consider basic rules of operations. And human decency. You talk about, it's interesting, no one's used this term yet because maybe it doesn't apply exactly, but they talk about cyberbullying all the time. This is a different level of stuff, right? But it's true that the wall, if you will, the internet, it could dehumanize the person on the wrong end of this abusive sort of contact. Maybe it's time for a reset. I mean, people need to understand these things more thoroughly than they're showing, that's for certain. Andy, you alluded to this a second ago, but let's come back to it. There are some other things going on here, not just with eBay in this situation, but in any complex organization, you think about things like management issues, oversight of employees, training even. What do you take away from this situation in terms of those kind of what should be basic things in a large organization? How's this fit? Well, it really struck us, Dave, when we looked at the facts in this case, that this went on for months and months, and the behavior was pretty egregious, including traveling across the country for physical mm -hmm. surveillance of this couple. And it appears that no one else inside eBay knew that this was happening. That implies a few things. Yeah. None of them good. One of them is it implies the lack of an effective reporting structure. Mm -hmm. And when Amy and I were preparing for this, Amy made a great point, which is that the more specialized an area a unit or group within a company works in, the harder it is to supervise that group because they're specialists in their area. They know what they're doing. If they're reporting to someone outside their group, their immediate report may have no real understanding of what that group does or how to properly supervise their behavior. And so some of that may have been going on here. It implies siloing. It implies a certain insularity in the groups or units operating within eBay and that one doesn't know what the other is doing. 
It also implies a problem with management training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there a consistent approach to management? Were managers trained? Were problematic managers identified and retrained? Was there a consistent approach to discipline? Mm -hmm. There's some indication in public reporting about an atmosphere of fear within eBay, and that could deter employees from reporting wrongdoing, right? What were the intragroup dynamics within the global resiliency group? How did people interact with Jim Baugh, who ran that unit? Did they feel like they were able to bring concerns to people in more senior management? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So it seems to me that the events, though weird, queue up a lot of questions that every organization should be thinking about. Definitely. And just to kind of pick up on something you said, Andy, and this is, again, this gets stranger the more I think about it, I guess. But these titans of the tech community, Ebays of the world, they tend to get really smart people to work there. They tend to recruit really smart people and they want them to stay. And you think really smart people, I guess, occasionally do dumb things, but this is beyond the pale. You got to wonder how did people that might show such poor judgment later get in the door? Or am I oversimplifying here? I think that is a question. And I'm curious for Amy's thoughts on this, but I think it is hard at the front end to screen for that. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult in the recruiting process to understand whether, say, a Jim Baugh or someone else who you can hire as a mid-level to senior-level manager, beyond being smart enough and having the right experience, do they have the judgment to avoid unnecessary problems when they're running the unit? I think it's extremely difficult to catch that on the front end. I think it's more an ongoing management and reporting question when they are in the organization. Makes sense. Amy, pick up on that in the context maybe of compliance and and making sure that procedures are in place that can help, if not prevent, at least detect these kinds of things before they get out of control. What do companies need to be doing? You need to put in the structure that allows for that kind of reaching outside your silo that we've been talking about. So when we're saying, what is the dynamic? What is the culture? These are really important questions to ask. It's also important to think about who people could go to if they had Mm -hmm. questions or concerns, right? How would that work? Maybe it's something as simple as a hotline, but the better way to probably do it is to have more cross-functionality, more teams checking in with each other, more fostering of relationships for people outside of different groups that they're working in so that they don't just Mm -hmm. have silos and so that they learn a variety of perspectives and a variety of different people at the company who don't necessarily answer to each other. It may feel inefficient to have things kind of outside the tree. And I know that that Uh can be uncomfortable for people in and of itself, the idea that you're talking to this one or talking to that one. But it allows people to continue to have fresh perspectives on what a group is doing and, and people questioning it from different ideas. And as Andy said, sometimes when there's a specialization, there's kind of a deferral to people and people mm-hmm. are afraid to ask questions. Sometimes they're afraid to look stupid. As you said, eBay and Silicon Valley and all of these yeah. companies, they're hiring really smart people and people are sometimes afraid to ask questions. I see that all the time in tech. There's new acronyms every day. Huh, and right. Maybe just a willingness to Put yourself out there and say, wait, what is that? Wait, I'm confused about this. What is this plan? Having structure around writing things down and, and vetting them with other people. It can prevent people from going too far down a path where had they had a fresh set of eyes on it, they would have quickly seen it was the wrong path. 
And this is interesting. We're talking about breaking down silos and cross-referencing things and getting teams involved. That's a whole different discussion and maybe for a whole different podcast, really, because that's not what we, but that there are lots of benefits to that, right? In terms of creativity and sharing energy and as you put it, fresh perspectives. So there are positive things there too, besides just maybe helping prevent not so good stuff like what we're talking today. So that's always a good idea. I want to go back to Andy for a second. You were kind enough. I'm giving the listeners some inside baseball here. We don't just show up and do this cold. We have a couple of phone calls. We send notes back and forth for show preparation. In one of the documents that you were kind enough to send over, Andy, you referenced the significance of corporate culture and, and I'm quoting, a tone from the top. What exactly does that mean in the context of all this matter? And why is that important? I think overall that might be the key lesson here, Dave. Mm. Tone from the top is a well-known compliance principle. Everyone who thinks about compliance has heard that line again and again. And essentially what it means is that leadership in an organization should be modeling ethical behavior and be encouraging corporate employees to also act ethically and to want Mm. to act ethically. And so you can Mm -hmm. think about compliance in two ways. There's rules-based compliance and then there's culture-based compliance. So rules-based compliance is you say to your employees, look, these are the rules and you need to follow them or else. Mm -hmm. And maybe you get compliance that way. Culture-based compliance is modeling ethical behavior and encouraging your employees to engage in ethical behavior because it's the right thing to do, right? So inculcating those values in your employees. At the end of the day, culture-based compliance always works better because you never know what factual scenario is going to confront an employee, what temptation is going to confront an employee. And this weird case is a perfect example. And so when those weird scenarios come up, you want your employees to fall back on the values that they've been taught to follow as an employee of that company, basically to do the right thing. It always works better. So here, as I think Amy pointed out earlier, you had executives at the very top of the company setting the wrong tone with Jim Baugh, who ran that global resiliency unit, at least if the public filings in the criminal case are accurate. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. they're sending him texts like, whatever it takes, as Amy said earlier, there's one that says, burn her to the ground, referring to the woman in the couple that ran the e-commerce site. All of those things send the wrong tone of aggression and results-oriented approach, which may have, remains to be seen, Mm. encourage Jim Baugh and his staff to act that way. Adding to that is if there's an unhealthy atmosphere for employees within eBay, meaning if employees are afraid to report concerns to management, are afraid to report apparent misconduct, are afraid to be fired if they don't follow every single order or suggestion, that too is going to tie in and make it even harder to unearth this conduct once it's gotten rolling. You said all that very well. There's no way the compliance manual, do this, don't do that. You're allowed to do this. You can't do that. There's no way you could possibly anticipate every potential situation an employee might be faced with, let alone something as bizarre as what we're talking about today. So I get what you're saying now in terms of the tone from the top. As you say, that might have been the best lesson we take away from all this. Hey, since we were talking about culture, let's return to that for a second. Amy, there's talk out there about the Silicon Valley culture, how competitive it is, and even cutthroat and so forth. Does that kind of mentality play a role in a situation like this, do you think? The big picture, 
atmosphere always plays a role. So in the sense that there are certainly legendary stories about combative kinds of behavior in Silicon Valley and also encouraging of innovative thinking. This is a innovative thinking gone awry, but mm. certainly innovative. So I think that there are factors that contribute that you could say this is part of what is good and bad about Silicon Valley culture. Often, I think what is good about a place is sometimes what's bad about it. And that is a lesson to look at, but it's something that we should extrapolate out and say, what are the cultural things that contribute to behavior at all companies? And certainly competitiveness is high among them and also solving problems, getting the job done. There are things that, again, can be good or bad. It depends on what degree you take them to and how you try to affect that goal. And the way that Andy phrased it as an important tone from the top and cultural issue, it mm -hmm. can't be underscored enough. There's nowhere in any manual that says don't send fetal pigs or live cockroaches to your enemies. Right? We never think to articulate it. Wouldn't it be great? You're, you're sitting there the first day at the job. You're an employee orientation. They're showing you where the restrooms are and everything. Hey, by the way, cockroaches are a no. Dave, those manuals, they might say that now. <laughs> yeah. you know what? Well, this would be the lawyer problem, right? It's why our contracts are always have 40,000 provisions in them because they're always trying to solve for the last problem. And really, you could just distill it all down to do the right thing or some other kind of corporate ethos. It goes right back to that whole point about the culture of compliance. Excellent. Excellent. We've covered a lot here today in a short amount of time. And I thank you both. If you had to give us one takeaway you know, one lesson learned, you know, what was the big idea, if you will, that you come away from this conversation with? I'd like to hear from each of you. Andy, first, what do you want our listeners to remember about this program? I remember my reaction to this case because when it came up, I was running the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, so you're leading an organization. My one takeaway from this is you have to lead from the front. Guys like Jim Baugh or the other defendants in that case, they thrived at eBay because leadership above them was not sending the right message. And so if leadership is sending the right message to those beneath them in the organizational chart, I don't think this kind of thing happens mm -hmm. because I think people willing to engage in it don't last at the company that long. Gotcha. Well said. Amy, what do you want to leave the listeners with regarding this bizarre eBay matter? I'll echo something that Andy said a few moments ago. You never know what scenarios you're going to be faced with. You, your employees, this case could easily be dismissed as an incredibly outrageous and extremely unique situation. And that would be a mistake because, well, this exact fact pattern, one hopes would never play out again in this way. There are so many crazy things that happen in this world. Sure. And you asked us at the beginning, have you ever seen this before? No. no. Definitely not, nor do I think it will arise in this way again. But will there be other situations where ordinary people find themselves in extraordinary situations and engage in activity that they never would have seen themselves doing and cross the line sometimes into criminal activity? Absolutely. And companies and individuals need to be on guard for that. We'll leave it right there. Well said. Andy, Amy, thank you both. Thank you both so much. This was great. I hope we do this again soon, but I hope the next thing we talk about is not as strange, if that's okay with you. So, but, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Hey, you guys, thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure. You can find complete contact information for Andy Lelling and Amy Burkhart at jonesday.com. And be sure to check out our Insights page for more podcasts, videos, publications, newsletters, and other compelling content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever else you can find your podcast. Joe's Day Talks is produced by Tom Condless. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.